Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode are Mike and Emmett from the My Wall Street Analyst teams. This week, we're talking about Nikola Motors' CEO being found guilty of fraud, why Netflix's most recent quarter was so impressive, and Mike pitches DLocal, a payment platform that focuses on the Latin American markets. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Emmett, Mike, welcome to this week's Stock Club podcast. Before we kick off today, I just want to mention, like last week, that we're running an exclusive offer for Stock Club listeners at the moment to sign up to our flagship Horizon service for a big discount. So if you don't know, Horizon is a personal portfolio run by Chief Investor Emmett, who's with us here on the podcast today. He's building a high growth portfolio with the aim of 10xing the market within the next decade. Horizon's members get access to loads of great stuff, including video stock pitches from Emmett himself, real-time buy and sell alerts via email, access to our live events, access to an online community of investors, and loads more great stuff. So if you want to get a whopping 40% off a year subscription to Horizon, all you need to do is follow the link in the notes for today's show, create a free My Wall Street account if you don't already have one, and then you'll be directed directly to the checkout page with that 40% discount already applied. Alternatively, you can just go to mywallstreet.com forward slash about forward slash Horizon, click the Join Horizon button and then input the discount code HORIZON40. So that's H-O-R-I-Z-O-N-4-0 at the checkout. We're only opening up 50 places. A lot of them are gone already. So move fast if you want to get one because once those spots are gone, they're gone. Emmett, your Horizon's your service, your baby. And any Anything else to add there? Yeah, the troubling thing is that I don't think I could have described it better myself, James. But <laughs> I would add maybe is that with any product, you can describe its features, which I might do in a moment. I know you just did, but I prefer hearing and describing a higher purpose. And, and for Horizon, here it is. What, what I want, what my professional higher purpose is, is to evangelize the life changing power of stock, uh, long term stock investing and to find and buy a couple of companies that over the medium to long term grow between 50 and 100 fold. And that is entirely captured in Horizon, which is imperfect. It's an imperfect service. It's had a pretty rough year, but it is me. This is my autobiography. And best of all, the service is a community of people who I want to be around and I hope vice versa. And in so far as possible, I know I have already identified a 20 or 50 bagger in Horizon in the making, but only time will unveil which ones they are. And as you know, uh, James, I've bought a virtually unheard of business month after month after month this year because yeah. I'm as certain as I ever can be that it will grow multiple folds from today's price. So that's the why of Horizon. I wish to create a new generation of successful investors, plain and simple. And as you said, what it is, you know, it's a library of, I think, 32 active stock pitches with an exact summary of why I think this company can grow multiple fold from today's levels and a four minute video pitch. And it's a view of every investment I've made since we launched a service in December 2019, both private and public companies. And it is a service, as you said, with an aspiration to grow 10x in value over 12 years. And that's the how to the why. And the how is going to get a whole lot better soon. But the service is essentially mine and my Wall Street's higher purpose. Yeah, absolutely. When you were talking there about that that company you've been buying recently, and whenever somebody says an unheard of, you, you kind of like roll your eyes. But this is genuinely the most unheard of stock I have ever not heard of in my life. Uh, really, really, um, it, it's one I, I don't know where you found them, but it's going good so far. So that's Horizon. Remember, as I said, if you want to grab a 40% discount to Horizon, there's 50 spots as well. There were 50 spots left. There's not 50 left anymore. So just click the link in the notes for today's show if you want to grab that. Let's get into the news today. 
today, guys. So uh, we're starting off today talking about electric cars, electric vehicles, but we're not going to go to our usual suspect, Elon Musk. We're actually going to go to Nikola Motors, whose CEO or former CEO, Trevor Milton, was found guilty of defrauding investors last week. The charges against Milton relate specifically to falsehoods he made about the technical achievements of his company, including that it was close to producing long-haul trucks that could produce emission-free uh, could run, sorry, emission-free on hydrogen fuel. Nikola's perhaps most famous is the company that published a video of one of its trucks driving, only for it later to emerge that the truck was actually being pushed down a hill <laughs> and wasn't driving under its own power at all. Probably more seriously, though, the company actually had a deal with GM at one point, which would see the veteran automaker take an 11% stake in, in Nikola to work on manufacturing a hydrogen-powered pickup truck called the Badger. Uh, unsurprisingly, that partnership has since been nixed. Mike, I'm going to come to you first on this. When we look at these charges against Trevor Milton specifically, how serious are they? You know, how bad could this get for Milton? Well, it's already pretty bad. Like last Friday, <laughs> you know, I don't think anything's been going well since about September 2020. But last Friday, he got charged with three counts of fraud, one security fraud and two wire fraud, I think, for just lying for about five years. Pl- um, plain old lying. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a great line from the prosecutor. He said Milton lied about nearly all aspects of the business when he was running, run, when he was running it. And I think what would be standard in a normal court case is that, you know, people will go back. They try to find out, they try to catch you out when you were lying. But looking at Milton and his track record, it's kind of hard to find a place where he wasn't lying. every like and it's like he's reiterating the points of like no no no, i i know exactly where i know exactly what's wrong with this business and i'm telling you all the complete opposite it's hard to feel sorry for him because he just seems like an absolutely awful person so in terms of how serious it is he's facing up to 25 years in prison for the charges against him judging by the u.s attorney's comments i don't think he's going to get off easy either the case uh, the sentence is going to be given out next january and the prosecutor said he wants this to serve as a warning for other shysters out there. And look, it's, it's looking at his like lifelong track record. It's hard not to say that he doesn't deserve it because yeah. it seems like he's just been getting away with it since he was about 20. So I, I'm going to give you a bit of a backstory here because this sounds like I'm really kicking somebody's down, but you know. <laughs> so, some people deserve to be kicked when they're down. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of that too. So, uh, Trevor Milton, he grew up in rural Utah. He was uh, a Mormon or the, it was a church of Latter day Saints. And, you know, a big part of that religion is going door to door and spreading the word of God and all that. So, what this leads to, I thought this was really interesting, is that Mormons are incredibly good door to door salesmen. Yeah. And it's a really job, really common job to go into once they kind of, reach adulthood, I suppose. Yeah. So Milton's first con job was an alarm company. He sold door, he sold alarms door to door. He later sold it on to some poor soul. And unsurprisingly, he overestimated the value of the company, misrepresented contracts, all that. So that was kind of, you know, how he started. Then his next job, he was, um, there was a local engineer in his hometown called Mike Shrout. And this is kind of the origin, origin story of Nicola itself. So uh, this local guy figured out a way to convert engines to run on natural gas instead of diesel. Yeah, Milton saw it, he got involved, and they set up a company called D-Hybrid. Milton put his name on all the patents that Stroud created. He basically ousted him through like kind of issuing himself shares, never issuing Stroud his shares. And then the day he finally gave Stroud his shares, he also issued a sub-company of his like six million more. So it completely <laughs> diluted Stroud's... Um, Shout stake. Yeah. Then he'd run the business into the ground, leave Shout with nothing. And then your man Shout, about six months after he got basically bank- bankrupt by Milton, found out that Milton and his dad started a new company called D Hybrid 2 or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So that's strike two. Right after all the Nikola fraudulent stuff coming out in the short report that we all know about in the truck rolling down the hill, there was two sexual assault accusations. One was from a former employee. The other was from a cousin. Um, <laughs> he was caught. He was caught on a live stream on Instagram saying, I didn't even graduate college because I wanted people. I wanted to pay people to do my homework. That's what real CEOs do. <laughs> he, <laughs> oh he, he sold off over 300 million in shares of Nicholas shares before getting out. Oh, he defrauded. He's, he bought the biggest ranch in Utah, something like 90 million. I can't remember what it was. But he convinced the guy he was buying it from 
to sell it to him in exchange for stock options on Nikola stock. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. I so, think as we'd say here in, in Dublin, he's a real uh, piece of work. Yeah. Uh, what I was thinking throughout that though, I was like, we need to here in stock club develop some sort of spectrum, you know, like with, with Elizabeth Holmes and Adam Newman and now Trevor, Trevor Milton as well. Well, I was oh, trying I to like, I was trying to place him on that. And I was like, yeah. you know, he's probably, you know, maybe not as bad as Adam Newman because he doesn't seem as kind of up his own verbial. Less of a God complex. He's going further and further down that spectrum. So, yeah, like where would you place him, Emmett? Where would you place him on, on uh, within that kind of, that trio of, of uh, liars, I suppose, for want of a better word? Yeah, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say he's, it's quite as bad as Adam, Adam Newman, but it feels like he's getting his comeuppance. Um, yeah. Now, in fairness, when you, when you, describe what you described there mike the backstory and conning people left right and center it's just it's a horrible character trait i mean we we as retail investors are relying on the uh, on the people leading our businesses to tell the truth first to take rational decisions and even coming back to horizon there's a couple of stocks i bought in the high risk world that frankly their promoters were lying through their teeth and mm-hmm. it's it's an absolutely despicable trait yeah. Despicable. Now, I was just thinking as you were talking there, Mike, that there's, is there anything you could do in Ireland to get 25 years in prison? Is there any crime that would get you 25 years inside, let alone, and at least America, life is life. You're in for the rest of your days. In Ireland, I, I just don't think 25 year stretches is even possible. So that's yeah. a long, well, long stretch. After Mike's brief bio there, he seems he might be yeah. getting off light with 25 years. Um, yeah. But let, let, let's move away from, from Milton then and back towards Nicola, which is obviously still a company. He, Milton might not be directly involved anymore, but still a publicly traded company. It's a company that had a lot of hype when it went public back in 2020. And I'm going to come to kind of talking about the way it went public in a few moments. But what is the state of Nikola as a company now? It's still operating. It's producing a limited number of battery-powered trucks with its international partners. Will this latest, I suppose, revelations about Milton affect the company in any way? Or has all this kind of uh, bad news been baked into Nikola's stock so far? Yeah, it's a weird one on Nikola because, you know, the, the, there's no charges against Nikola, the company mm-hmm. here. It, it settled a civil case at the end of last year. Um, it paid the SEC $125 million fine. But... That almost feels like it's getting off easy when you consider like the length and breadth of Milton's crimes were very pivotal in how this company was built. Do you know? Yeah. It's, I think it, it's not pre-revenue anymore, but it's not selling anything like, do you know what I mean? And, and it's still a billion dollar company. So like reputationally, it's tough to see a future in which Nikola can come out from like under the shadow of this in investors eyes, but also in like customers eyes and suppliers eyes as well. But it's it's, still, it's, t- it's tough on them though. Like in the Wall Street Journal report on on I suppose Milton's um, case, you know there there is reports of how other employees within uh, Nikola were trying to stop Milton, and especially in you know the, the various things he did to kind of bump up Nikola's share price. At one point, uh, Chief Executive Mark Russell testified that executives changed the the passwords to the corporate social media accounts to stop him getting into them to to manipulate the stock price. Yeah. Don't oh tell don't tell Emma we had to do the same thing at my walls. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I suppose I suppose there's two ways of looking at it. Like the other thing is the stock is down 95% from yeah. all-time highs. Um yeah. but yeah, it is. It's it's inter- it's weird to see something with such fraudulent origins and like no real business plan also be a company that hires 900 people and whose CEO Mm. is a former executive GM and Volkswagen. And like you mentioned GM there and the 11% stake and the 2 billion quid they owed them that, that, that fell through. It's, it, it it just seems weird that this is still going, that this didn't go kaput. Um, so I'm not sure, like GM is still in business with Nikola. Do you know what I mean? After all that, uh, GM still supplies Nikola's hydrogen fuel cells. So it's weird. It's a weird business. It's obviously like, it's one of the most shorted stocks on the market as well. And it's probably built on a completely unproven concept. We don't know if these hydrogen fuel cells work. Like what it's selling now is battery powered fuel, battery powered electric trucks, not hydrogen powered, uh, electric trucks. So it's not even doing kind of what, it's set out to do and it's yeah. not we're not sure if it's even possible that what it's set out to do can happen so yeah i i, I can't really i don't know where to put nicola on the uh on the scale right now but i don't think mm-hmm. there'd be many people touching it with the barge ball it's really a case study as to why 
business leaders need to do good because their organization not only touches every each and every member of that company's staff reputation but also the customers and the entire community in which it operates so like we're we're all about trying to find and back businesses out to do good but when you find a business has someone truly toxic at the top of the pyramid that toxicity can flush all the way down like if you take recently i was listening to a podcast by professor scott galloway i can't remember which episode it was but he went off on a rant about how utterly um morally corrupt meta is as a business yeah and the and i'm paraphrasing here but he said something to the effect of the only way he could kind of feel good about it is to know that everybody in their stock options has turned to dirt and it kind of for me it's skewed a little because meta is a business full of people like the three of us here full Mm. of people who are our listeners who are doing their best to do their best and yeah. it's a real shame that when a business either strategically or at a leadership level, and they are kind of joined that the, the absolute leader, the CEO, the founders, you know, they set the tone, they set the strategy. But when that tone and strategy skews with what the rest of the world is seen as right or good, everyone in that organization's reputation is suddenly on the block. And I can think of examples closer to home than Meta. Uh, and I won't even say the name, but a stockbroker here in Ireland that, frankly, name turned to turned toxic, and 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 it was full of good people yeah. who suddenly were tarnished with a brand that had gone wrong. And I think it's a real shame. And I think Milton uh, should be ashamed of himself to use Irish mammy speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> just before we move on from this story, Emmett, while I have you as well, you know, Nicola's one of those companies that you know, went public as part of that SPAC craze we saw back in kind of 2020. And as Mike said, you know, the value has been absolutely decimated. I think it was, they hit a high of $90 a share. It's down to around $3 a share now. You know, when we're looking back two years in the future at that SPAC craze, any any kind of learnings? Is this an example of kind of some of the the kind of companies that should have never gone public slipping through through the kind of the, the easier path via SPAC? Yeah, well, for me, there's several clear lessons here, James. And as much as the the traditional IPO process is cumbersome and it's undoubtedly expensive. All the links in the chain that lead up to an IPO, as opposed to being suddenly listed via a SPAC, mm. are in the most part necessary and for the benefit of everyone involved. So on retrospect, the SPAC rush was a bubble, of course, and it wasn't unlike the dot-com bubble. And I have to admit, I am really annoyed at myself for allowing myself to waver from my very own rule book, which I learned the hard way and getting caught up in barefaced lies that some of the promoters were pushing. Yeah. Um, there, there were some really massively credible names getting behind SPACs that altogether gave a weight to the movement. Like one that springs to mind was, I think it was called Forest Road Acquisition Corp. And when their SPAC filed in early 2021, it had names behind it like uh, Shaquille O'Neal, the former NBA player, Kevin Mayer, who was a former Disney executive and and actually briefly he was the CEO of TikTok, Martin Luther King III, who's the son of Martin Luther King Jr. It had like really super credible names from, mm. uh, from sports, from social causes, from the business world. But look, there were equally quality companies that got to market just yeah. as there were during the dot-com craze. Like SoFi springs to mind as one of the exciting, incredible companies that came to market via SPAC and one that I happen to believe is going to perform very well in the years ahead. My top learning was a whole pile of lessons that I had already learned 20 years earlier and ones that I will never, ever, ever have to learn again. And as the saying goes, uh, fool me once, shame on you, uh, shame me twice. What is it? Fool me, <laughs> fool me twice, shame. <laughs> I turned into George W. You, Bush. Do you remember you got this from? It was like, I think it's fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Oh my goodness. I fudge it just like President W. Oh, that's funny. As, as one of my friends used to say, the lights are on, but there's no place like home. <laughs> With SPACs, and there was two major issues and we're only looking at them retrospectively and the first was that you were allowed to not only that you were allowed to include future projections but those future projections weren't policed yeah so like you could completely create your own narrative but i think the other issue was that it was too financially beneficial for the sponsors for it not to become 
easily taken advantage of. There was mm. too much of a financial incentive for the person to bring the SPAC to market and be the organizer of that. Yeah. And, and they were less interested in the long-term prospects of the company and more interested in the immediate financial game. I think there's similar things going on with like leverage buyouts, especially back in the day. So, so there were, I don't think SPACs inherently promote bad businesses, but I think that there is too many opportunities there to take advantage of people within them. Yeah. That, yeah, that's a good that's a that's a good perspective to put on it. Let's move on then to, to kind of some better stock news. So we're recording this on Wednesday, October nineteenth, and just last night, next Netflix reported on its third quarter. So in my Wall Street's world, Netflix is typically one of their first companies to report its earnings every quarter, just after the banks. And considering how rough the past few quarters had been for Netflix or have been for everybody, pretty much, I'm really hoping that everybody follows follows Netflix's example here. It was a really good quarter on the top line for Netflix, adding two point four million new subscribers in the period which was a lot more than the one million that they had initially anticipated Emmett, as most people know you're a longtime follower of an investor in netflix what was your initial reaction to netflix's quarterly report last night well netflix was my last buying horizon about two weeks ago and it was based on the fact that for almost 20 years i've watched a company compress bad news yeah and habitually under promise so they really deal with things that are bad they make sure it gets out there they put heat on it and they don't overpromise. Uh, so Tuesday night's results were very well received, Shay, my Wall Street. And the quarter was a bit of a beast, it has to be said. And I'll start with the three headline numbers. Earnings per share came in at $3.10 versus $2.13 expected. So earnings per share came in about 47% higher than the average opinion. Revenue came in at $7.93 billion versus seven point. A3 billion expected. So it was about 1.2% higher uh, in revenue, but it was the net subscribers number that knocked people's socks off. The addition of 2.4 million subscribers versus an addition, uh, an expected addition of 1.09 million subscribers. In mm. other words, 121% higher than expected. And management vis a vis Reed Hastings and his team uh, forecast 7.8 billion revenue for Q4 net income of 136 million and expects to add 4.5 million new streaming subscribers. So numbers, numbers, numbers. Numbers are not very exciting in a podcast because they're, for me, a visual thing and we like to see trends. But it was interesting to observe the impact of foreign exchange fluctuations on the report. Revenue would have grown 13% year over year if exchange rates were excluded. And they're having a negative impact across the board for the business. In fact, the company's operating margin fell to 19.3% from 23.5% a year early earlier entirely as a result of the dollar's appreciation. It, it's something relatively. we're seeing across, you know, multiple industries. I think Anne-Marie, I think it was last week, mm. Anne-Marie spoke about inventory levels being a big problem for retail, but it seems across any company that in, uh, operates internationally, these kind of foreign exchange rates are really eaten into margins. No, you're right there. And, and Reed Hastings said, well, he said a couple, he said on the call, in fact, on it was either Bloomberg or CNBC, I was watching him this morning, he said, a quote, thank God we're done with shrinking quarters, which is a real, like he wouldn't say that lightly. So mm. there's data behind that statement. But he also went on to say that all the stars are lining up for the company now, but the currency thing is here to stay. And he said those words. So really the strong dollar, as you said, and as Anne-Marie said last week, is something that just affects any business that's operating outside the jurisdictions of their of their local borders. So as you said, Emmett, numbers, numbers, numbers. But like to, to come back to that a little bit, you know, everybody seemed extremely pleased that, you know, we're we're seeing relatively good subscriber growth again for Netflix, definitely beyond its own forecasts. But as you said yourself, there you know, there was just six percent real revenue growth, net profits and operating margins both fell. You know, Netflix is a fairly mature company. How can we as investors be satisfied with this kind of good growth metrics when you know maybe there's there's the financials aren't as impressive is is netflix in a place where we should be still concerned with growing its audience rather than kind of making itself more um profitable in in a financial sense Mm -hmm. well to answer that i think i'll just go to two data points that have been measured and proven to drive long time long term stock price appreciation and before i go there as you know there's endless websites for stock research, especially 
numbers-based research because it's a far easier thing to build an update. So mm. apart from Yahoo Finance, which really is the OG, my favorite site for looking at macro trends is macrotrends.net. And that's what I have <laughs> open here in front of me. So when I look at revenue growth, and I'm coming to an answer to your question, I'm, I'm going to get really good at answering the only question you asked me. But when I look at revenue growth from March 2010, it has grown every single quarter since 2010. And when you look at return on equity, return on equity has grown steadily um, from around mid-2012 all the way through to today. And return on equity today is 30%, 30.06%. So what? Well, I'd like to remind regular listeners that Chris Mayer, who wrote the book 100 Baggers and Where to Find Them, and is interviewed here in Stock Club, called out ROE, return on equity, as probably the most common numerical attribute to 100 baggers. Then on the other side, Morgan Stanley recently in conjunction with, I think it was BCG, I think it was Morgan Stanley and BCG proved that revenue growth is the single most important factor for long-term share price growth, not to be okay. confused with a, an attribute of a 100 bagger. So both of these fronts, whether it's we're looking at an exceptional return on equity, which for anything above 20% is exceptional and Netflix is at 30, and revenue growing quarter after quarter after quarter, and we have 10 years of that, actually more, on both of these fronts, Netflix is a raging green light. So we are looking at a business that might not be growing some numbers in the way that we would wish, but we are looking at a business that very much is has created shareholder value and I believe will create a whole lot more. Okay. Mike, uh, uh, come over to you. In the report last night, management was at pains to point out that its competitors, so presumably the likes of Disney, Amazon, Hulu, are losing money on streaming while Netflix has an operating profit. It struck me as, you know, number one, it was, I kind of enjoyed that, that jibe from management. But number two, it strikes me that these other companies can afford to lose money on their streaming efforts. But seeing as streaming is, is all Netflix does pretty much, it can't really afford to, to lose that. Is, is that like, does that make sense to you in, in terms of, you know, using that as a, as a boast by Netflix? No, I took that as kind of a very long-term view of, well, maybe these companies' streaming efforts aren't sustainable. Like, yeah. So I think he said something along the lines of our operating profit was what, 5 billion or 6 billion this year. And they estimate that their competitors are going to lose 10 billion a year. So I took that as, look, we're the ones who are doing streaming correctly. We've been doing it the longest. We know how to do it. These guys are coming in and these guys are the reason why subscribers are slowing down and why there is this subscription fatigue across customers everywhere. But they're also not running an efficient business. They're losing money while doing it. Mm. And I, I think that was kind of the line in the sand from Netflix. It was like, we're the experts. We know how to do this. And it took us, remember, it took Netflix an age to actually start turning a profit and making money properly. Yeah. So I, I, I do, I think that's pointing out perhaps the, I, I suppose the kind of like the beginner, the amateurness, not amateurness, but like the, these competitors are new to the game. Netflix has been there for a long time. So that would be my perception of it. Okay, interesting. Uh, and Emmett, just to finish up quickly here, obviously the big news around Netflix is it's introducing advertising to the platform. Did we learn anything new about that um, last night? We know it's coming at some stage mm. next month. Yeah, well, the first two big strategic chips is rolling out its first tier of ad-supported content, which will help increase the average revenue per subscriber. But it was last week that they said that the, they plan launching this kind of lower a different price tier next month and they're going to charge seven dollars a month in america and five pounds a month in the uk and they expect the ad tier to provide significant revenue and profit and noted that it received strong interest from advertisers which is very important mm -hmm. and just while i touch on it james and i know we have to push on that the second strategic initiative is cracking down on password sharing and getting viewers who are sharing accounts to pay in order to do so and the company has tested different approaches to getting households to pay more to share and said it plans to roll out a sharing policy in 2023. And just finally, finally, James, I surveyed a few of Netflix's 220 million subscribers on my Twitter account about an hour ago, <laughs> and already 122 of them have responded. Not 122 okay. million, 122. <laughs> <laughs> and about one in four said they plan to sign up for 
the ad-supported okay. cheaper package. So I guess with 122 data points, we can extrapolate that across 220 million people. Yeah. That, that's how it works, right? <laughs> I'm not a statistician. <laughs> it is interesting, though, that they're doing it this way, where the people who are too cheap to pay for their own Netflix now, when they get kicked off, at least have a cheaper option. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, oh, that's yeah. true. Yeah. 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 Well, when you're listening to this podcast as it goes live on Friday, make sure to jump over to Emmett's, <laughs> Emmett's Twitter account. He might have a few more answers Very there. We might have a bigger market research. sample site. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. So before we move on, I just want to remind everyone listening that Stocktober is still running. So every day in October, we're posting a new 60-second stock pitch video across all of our social media channels. These pitches give you all the basics that you need to know about a selection of publicly listed companies. So far, we've covered companies like Olaplex, Salesforce, Zillow, MasterCard, Manchester United. So make sure to follow us across Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, and make sure that you don't miss out on any of those video pitches. Uh, they're running until the end of the month. Mailbag. Emmett, we've a mailbag question for you this week. So as we've mentioned already, we held our inaugural Horizon event a few weeks ago here in Dublin and we had Bill Mann who's a senior analyst with The Motley Fool as a special guest at that event. Bill is a really really interesting guy and we had loads of people asking about the insights Bill gave us about you know his, his quite substantial career in investing and, and quite colourful career as well. So the question for your mailbag today Emmett is what were your top three takeaways from that chat with Bill? Mm, three okay well the first is that Many of the best investments are right under your nose. And that was evident from the fact that one of Bill's three desert island stocks was Domino's Pizza, which he liked to paraphrase because of process innovation and their ability to precisely measure absolutely everything with precision from the weight of each ingredient used per pizza right through to delivery times and order patterns and so on. And once you can measure it, you can improve it. Uh, so that'd be my first one that very often the thing you're looking at on a regular basis in your life is a great investment. The second I'll say is that boring can be great. And something Peter Lynch has always said, most notably in his book, One Up on Wall Street. And to that end, Bill pitched Watsco, which surprised me. It's the largest distributor of air conditioning and heating and refrigeration equipment and all things to do with moving, cooling and heating air. And, uh, it's a really boring business, but <laughs> yeah. it's it's um, economics and unit economics are very appealing. It's super boring. And that was, a, he kind of echoed the Peter Lynch one. He also pitched Berkshire, which I suppose is also, I don't want to call it boring because really it's arguably. I wouldn't, most, like, I wouldn't call it interesting. <laughs> no, but it is. I, but I tell you what we can Don't worry. I don't it. think, I don't think Warren's listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's definitely the most magnificent investment of all time. So yeah. you're right, it's neither boring nor exciting. But so let's see, my third takeaway, my final takeaway from Bill was that, yeah, it was from the other section where I interviewed Bill on stage and 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 it reminded me that occasionally you do need to look far and wide to find something positioned to grow multifold from today's levels. And on that, he pitched a South African company that I had not heard of that I've since dived into and actually planned to pitch for Horizon. So thank you, okay. Bill. So you can have great investments under your nose, a la Domino's. You can have boring businesses that are around you but are invisible to you, like like Watsco. And then, of course, there are those that 
have the potential to grow two, five, ten, twenty, fifty fold, and they occasionally are further than your line of sight. Okay. Thanks for that. Remember, if you're a Horizon subscriber, you can actually catch up on the full video of Bill's two chats. He, he joined Emmett for an interview. They joined us for our Desert Island stocks in Horizon. Now, the, if Bill ever comes back or when Bill comes back, I want to ask him more about his golden rule of not investing in, in companies based in Florida, which I feel he didn't explain fully. <laughs> I, I have a few, I have a few uh, theories why, why that is. But let's move on, guys, to our elevator pitches to, to kind of close out today's show. So same as always, guys, I want a 60 second elevator pitch off each of you. I'm going to pick my favorite and we're going to dig into it in a little bit more detail. Mike, you well, you can go first. What company are you pitching me today? So yeah, the company I'm pitching is is a bit of a, an old favorite of mine. Um, I'm re-pitching. So I, I think it's always good for investors to have a bank of stocks hidden away somewhere that you mm. might have passed on for one reason or another at the time, but to go and check back in and see if they've solved the is- issues you originally had. So for today's elevator pitch, I'm uh, re-pitching a company called D-Local. It's a payment processor that acts as a middleman between global merchants and emerging markets. So it has kind of, it has a presence in 37 countries across Latin America, Africa, and Asia Pacific. And then what it does, it will partner with its 500 merchants to accept and distribute payments through local payment methods. These regions are largely unbanked, so it circumvents a lot of regulatory and logistical headaches involved in expanding into new country. And uh, I think it's a very exciting business, growing like okay. crazy as well. Yeah, interesting one. Uh, not one I'm I'm overly familiar with, to be honest. Emmett, what about you? What company are you pitching me? I'm going to go with a business I might have mentioned on Stock Club in the past, and it's called Fresh Pet. And yep. their goal is to change the way people nourish their pets forever. And Fresh Pet is known to the, anyone, I guess, in America who's looked at pet refrigerated food products. Uh, it's a $2.7 billion business. And they have a growth strategy that's very impressive. So basically, their net sales have grown year after year after year. Their projection this year is to finish this year with about $575 million in sales. And they have a very clear and reliable path to $1.25 billion in sales by 2025. So that's they expect to comprehensively double their sales in the next couple of years. And the reason that that's reliable is when they actually trendlined their revenue growth from the year 2006 right through to 2025 and explain what's going to happen between now and then. And that's mostly focused on their investing in long-term capacity and new technology to keep up with demand. So in other words, the facilities for creating food. And I know on the podcast before with um, Anne-Marie, we've discussed BarkBox. And one of the risks to BarkBox is that in a world where we have to be a little more price conscious and watch our wallets uh, more closely, you know, the first thing that's going to go is a toy a month for your dog. But if mm. you own a dog, you still have to feed it. And that's where Fresh Pet comes in. Okay. I hope uh, your your dog Bowie isn't listening. <laughs> he might be getting worried that you're getting rid of his treats. Any mention Do- of food around a Labrador. You can teach <laughs> a Labrador to drive a bus off the promise of food. <laughs> <laughs> Two great pitches, guys. But Mike, I'm going to go with your one today, seeing as it's, it's one we've we've chatted about before. And I, I'm curious to get back. So let, let's get into it. And the very first question I had is in your pitch there, you mentioned that you had some concerns about it when you pitched it before. What were those concerns about D-Local and have they been alleviated or, or relieved in any way? Mm, not really. So <laughs> this is this is the frustrating part about this practice is that when you come back with the same when you come back the second time with the same questions you had the first time it doesn't really provide much I suppose satisfaction. But there is there's there's a few concerns around revenue concentration around kind of geo geolocation concentration I suppose. So uh, let's let's get into it and we'll cover we'll cover everything. So I gave you a kind of a rundown of what Dlogo was. Digging into it a bit further, it's got two main forms of like products or uh, payments I suppose we'll call them. First is called pay-in. Pay-ins are receiving payments and payouts are distributing payments. So if you think of a typical pay-in situation would be a Brazilian Netflix subscriber paying via Dlogo's payment method, whether that's Cash, debit or credit cards, bank transfer, whatever. And then D- local manages all the processing fees, further local payment, payment methods, foreign exchange, and then repatriates the funds to Netflix US account. The inverse then would be, say, if Uber wanted to pay a driver in New G- Nigeria. 
yeah. pretty much the same thing, but the other direction. What's really interesting about this business is that it makes kind of international expansion so much easier for its clients. They had a case study on their investor relations page I thought was really interesting. It was about a VPN provider called Surfshark. And so they ended up expanding beyond the countries, countries they had listed in their business plan. So I think that kind of, it shows, I suppose, the utility of this product in that you can go beyond even your own plans based on how easy they make it for you. Yeah, they've um, got some, I'm just looking at the page here, they've got some big, big clients with Booking.com, Nike, Uber, TripAdvisor. Yeah, so that's actually one of the issues. Um, <laughs> okay. it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound burst, like an issue. Burst my balloon there. <laughs> it doesn't sound like an issue. And I'm going to follow that up by saying something really good as well. So the company had a net revenue retention rate. So no, it's one of our favorite uh, statistics to look at. Yeah. Of 157% in the last quarter. And uh, and it also has all these great big customers. And two of those things are great. But the worry in that is that first, it's not gaining a lot of new traction with new customers. So of the 101 million it took in, in revenue in the most recent quarter, 93 million of that was from its existing customer base. So you're, okay. only, get, you're only getting 8 million from new business, which kind of you know is a bit of a red flag and then the second one is revenue concentration at the top so the top 10 clients for d local make up 51 percent of revenue in q2 okay and so this is playing to i suppose where the money is coming from the same customers every time now this figure was down from 63 percent last year and that was down again from the year before so it is going the right direction but it's still a very prominent risk factor for the business if you lose one of those big clients they could wreak habit. It also puts a lot of power in the customer's hands. It allows them to no- negotiate pricing, take rates, all of that. So that's mm-hmm. interestingly both an opportunity and a risk because you see something like that and you see big name blue chip clients and you're like brilliant, solid, steady revenue. But you also see the amount of power they have over the company's overall kind of revenue and everything else. And it, it does put the hankers up a bit. I see it's in uh, Uruguay. So its currency, I guess, is the Uruguayan peso, which I presume is another risk. You know, uh, the peso versus the dollar, I'm just looking at a trend line here, has, well, like every other currency, hasn't been too favorable. Yeah, well, it's important in US dollars. But again, that's that works the same. It's, um, we just talked about Netflix's problems. Mm. Yeah. And you can ima- as you can imagine, coming from... 37 different currencies that's only going to go multiplied so that's a big mm-hmm. a big issue for sure mm-hmm. but you mentioned mm-hmm. geolocation then in your your initial pitch and, and sorry you mentioned the unbanked as well and obviously um south america latin america there's a hugely unbanked population there that that's obviously a big opportunity then for a company like this is it yeah so emmett mentioned there that they're originally they originated in uruguay and the company's focus while it says Latin America, Africa, Asia Pacific, the company's focus is definitely on Latin America. So okay. 87% of revenue comes from Latin America, while only 13% comes from Africa and Asia Pacific. These regions, Africa and Asia Pacific, are growing much faster. They were growing 155% year over year. But and 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 it's not just that. It's like uh management has also indicated that this is where the co- it sees the company's growth coming from in the future too. Mm. Um, it's seen success there. It's seen nine out of his top 10 merchants, which is 50% of his revenue have all now expanded into these areas as well. Mm. Um, and that's absolutely an opportunity because you're giving these companies a bridge into the fastest growing regions in the world, but it also brings in a lot more risk factors. Like as in if they are, we'll say if they're pros in Latin America, they know those markets well. They don't know these new markets. Yeah. Expanding like this is going to bring in new risk factors, new unknowns. It's going to put pressure on margins. There's already a lot of competition there from companies like Adgen and Stripe have made entryways mm. into these two markets too. So I think it's obviously, I, I it's, it's both. It's, it's similar to the big customers, you know, like as in yeah. you can't take one without the other and you can't have those rewards of being this bridge to these regions without the risks involved in them too. But it does bring question marks for sure. 
well, my next question was going to be about competitors, and you mentioned Stripe and Agin there. Is is it the big guys who are the competitors to, to D-Local, or is there kind of any smaller, more local players within the Latin American market? So what I noticed was that there was a lot of this kind of cross-country payment specialists and stuff, but yeah. very few of them had specialized in the areas where D-Local did. So that was kind of D-Local's edge. And it's only recently that Stripe and uh, Agen have made these emerging markets kind of a priority. So I would say that they definitely have the step on them. But Mm -hmm. in terms of going up against the kind of the might of these two companies, which are much bigger, it is uh, it's definitely an uphill task, I would say. But again, we're we're talking about very, very early doors. Do you know what I mean? It's not like we, we see maybe with fintech or something like that in very saturated markets in the US or the UK or Ireland. This is the complete opposite of that. So I wouldn't say competitive pressures would have too much effect. I know that um, CEO on the most recent call, he was mentioning the company's growth strategy and he was talking about they're going to, because they have an amazing margin profile. The company has 38% EBITDA margins, 30, 30% net margins. It's it's a really like profit mm. machine. And it said that in it's going to forego, it'll it'll like, you know, take the hit on take rate and like see its margins go down a bit in order to prioritize volume. Yeah. And and that's obviously going to happen in a more competitive environment as well. If they're going to have to compete with Agen and Stripe on price they're not going to be able to enjoy the same margins they've been enjoying. But I'm I'm not sure is that exactly what you want to hear at these times, a company yeah. foregoing profitability for growth. Well, that, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like a, a small company, about $6 billion, not particularly an old company either. You know, if we were talking about this maybe two years ago, you would want to see it, you know, aggressively go for that growth and that audience capture. When we're looking down the barrel of economic uncertainty and, and what's looking more likely like a recession, would I well, put the question out to you guys, would you not prefer to see a company kind of batten down the hatches a bit and, and get their, their margins in order? Do you know, as Mike as Mike was pitching it there, and I've been reading up on it as well in parallel, I, I went from lukewarm to very, very interested in D-Local. And to your question, James, I if you have the financial resources, and I haven't looked at the balance sheet yet, I presume it does, you know, now might be the very time to do your land grab because okay. comp- it, it, there is a reasonable chance your competitors are gone into profitability, you know, profit before growth mode. Like I just, what really has struck me as I just looked through some of the trend lines here for D-Local is the velocity of revenue and profit growth. It's just unbelievable. In the year 2020, it did $1.2 trillion in e-commerce transactions. And in the last quarter, it did $2.4 billion just in its quarter. So it nearly did double in Q2 of 2022 compared to the entire year of 2020. And, mm. you know, 30% margins, the revenue growth, when you just take a simple look at revenue growth here on Yahoo Finance quarter on quarter is really, it's a thing of beauty. So I, uh, I've, I've certainly, when you started to pitch it, Mike, I was, you don't really want to go into competition with Stripe mode and agent. Uh, is that how you pronounce it? Agent? I, I say Adyen, but I think Adyen. it's one of those. One Agen. of those words I've only ever read. You know Agen, yeah. Actually, it was I, Bill Mann who I'm corrected me. He was like, it's Agen. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's Agen. The pronunciation's anyway. Agen's standpoint. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Jobs. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. I, I, so to, to your question, James, I, I, you, you kind of have to trust that management is taking the route that ultimately benefits shareholders because they, yeah. they have done so to this point. Or sorry, they've taken a route to the benefit of the business strength. Yeah. Their share price is considerably down, but that's uh, the story of the world at the moment. And like yeah, you, see- and you talked about uh, growth velocity there. I think it's mm. always telling how fast the company is growing when they put a, uh, put quarter over quarter growth in the earnings reports. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> payment, <laughs> payment volume, revenue, and EBITDA were all up 16% just quarter over quarter. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Um, that's telling you something. It well, really is. You seem to have piqued Emmett's interest anyway. He's sounding like mm. a, a yellow traffic light to me. What's your final verdict or, or your current verdict on D-Local as a potential investment? It's It's got, 
a lot of the same question marks it had before. Uh, what it doesn't have is the prohibitive uh, valuation. Mm. So it makes it less of a, this company has to be absolutely perfect. It's got to be the next okay. you know, Berkshire Hathaway in 1980 or whatever. To justify that valuation, it doesn't have that anymore. So it is probably more of an attractive investment now than it was. But again, for half of this pitch, I was talking about kind of worries I had too. So I can't give it a full green. Yeah. Give, it a, give it a fairly light yellow. Okay. <laughs> what about you, Emmett? Are you a yellow as well? Well, I've also gone on to look now. So Dave, I mentioned earlier when I was talking about Netflix that I had a return on equity in the 30-something percent range, 31%, which is really quite an elite range. A current, according to numbers I'm looking at here, DeLoca's return on equity is 35%. It has nearly a half a billion in cash and negligible debt. So it does have a financial fortress to push forward in this growth strategy nearly 10% insider ownership. Yeah, I would, I, I, of course, you don't want to set up a business in competition. They used to say, you know, with Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, whoever, but you, you don't really want Stripe there as your main yeah. competitor. That is something that would cause me concern, but I'm with you. I'd be closer to green than amber. Yeah. Um, the number, I, the numbers definitely paint a pretty picture for it, don't they? They really do. They absolutely do. And it's a, it's still a small business. So, you know, yeah. when we think about the economic rule of three, there, it isn't just a zero sum game. It isn't just going to end up agents or, or stripes or, or stone Coast or any, or PayPal or whoever. It's not going to be a one business industry. And these guys might be one of those boutique niche players that have dominated lots and lots of smaller markets and made a lot of money in doing so okay interesting for a pitch that focused so much on the negatives (laughs) to come out so positive but thanks (laughs) for that mike that was that was a really interesting pitch Uh, and that is it for today's stock club remember if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or if there's any elevator pitches that you'd like us to tackle make sure to get in touch you can find us on twitter that's at my wall street hq on tiktok that's at my wall street or simply just email us at pod at my wall street.com that's pod at my wall sc.com if you're enjoying the show make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to stock club on thanks for joining us today and from the three of us here we'll talk to you next week even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks italian leather jackets and so much more and the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.